Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Morning, everyone. Yes, the first live Solidarity Breakfast for the year 2017. Of course, we're several hours away from the... or It's now moved on from the... Uh, 45th President of the United States being inaugurated, which we'll be talking about later in the program. Yeah, I think that started at about 4am our time this morning. (laughs) So some of the uh, truly devoted will have their eyes on their sockets. We're only uh, a little bit devoted. So we've got some information about it, which might be of interest to you, and that's going to be later on. We're going to talk to Katie Robinson, who actually was there in America following the campaign, and she's particularly interested in the gender issues. And we're going to be highlighting the Women's March that's coming on later in the day at one o'clock at the steps of uh, State Library. State Library. After some fairly shocking events in the city yesterday, uh, with a car going down uh, Burke Street, killing several people, and. but uh, this demonstration of support for uh, progressive politics is actually a little bit to the right of that crime scene, so it should all be fine. Yes, yeah, Swanston Street appears to be open. This is not that we're the traffic report, but from Swanston to King Street seems to kind of be blocked off, but you can go down those two roads. This is just from my little tram ride this morning. Yeah, horrifying. So we'll see what happens with that. Horrifying events. But anyway, moving right along, uh, we're going to also talk to Roger Wilson from the Fair Go for Pensioners After Eight. Uh, Kevin's still sleeping in his bed, so we won't be hearing from him uh, next week, but after that we will early February. So if you listen to the program for Kevin's Pearls of Wisdom, you you can sleep in for another two weeks. Uh, the uh, next uh, thing, uh, the, the first thing, cab off the rank, is actually going to be a chat with uh, Liz Ross. Yeah, we we wanted to talk to her, and we've like we wanted to talk to her for quite a while about automation, which or- is something we're here to give a talk on. Yes, exactly right. And this was at the uh, Socialist Alternatives uh, Union, Conference. Union Conference earlier in um, 2016. Uh, and uh, it's something that's piqued our interest. And of course, will anybody who's working or anybody who's got any views to society will be interested in finding out more about. But before we talk to Liz, we'll have a, an, an important announcement. Songs of Teachers of our story. Let it be written in the maze of 
culture is the reason that we made it. Join 3CR for our Invasion Day broadcast on January 26th. Tune into 3CR between 11am and 4pm for our Treaty Now special broadcasts. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land and Aboriginal law. G'day Liz, how are you? Good, and hello to you there too. Yeah, yes. and of course we haven't Thanks told Thanks for any- talking to us. Yeah, and we haven't <laughs> told anybody. We're so excited, we forgot to say that I'm Annie and... I'm Kim. Yeah, the uh, dynamic dynamic duo who's only who are only half awake. See, that's one person for a Saturday morning. But you're fully awake, Liz. I think so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got you here to talk to us about something that you spoke about at the uh, Socialist Alternative Union Day, which was about automation. What were some of the thing key elements that you discovered when you were researching that paper? Right. Um, well, I think, I mean, it's very fitting that this is the first sort of pro live program for the year because, you know, we are talking about what's coming up in the future in terms of work. And obviously automation, robots, artificial intelligence are all part of that, that you know, the, the new world of work for, for people. Not, not that there hasn't been new tech changes over the years, obviously, but, but um, certainly this is becoming more and more a feature of what people think about. And I think basically it, it's um, boiled down to uh, three, three sort of areas, whether, whether um, this new world is going to be better for workers, whether it's going to introduce a sort of dystopian uh, universe, uh, you know, where, where the bosses rule and the workers are just slaves, or whether um, as somebody, you know, sort of key writer on a, lot, a range of issues Paul Mason talks about, where new technology is going to allow a sort of peaceful transition into a post-capitalist world, um, you know, of, you know, better lives for everybody. And I think, I think really um, what, what it taught, what I sort of discovered during doing the research for this, um, sort of some of the basic figures, but also how you really need to go back to uh, an analysis of, of capitalism itself and analysis that really goes back to Karl Marx because he's, he really nailed the issues that face workers, whether it's, whether it was back in the 1850s or whether it's, you know, into the 2050s. We're still living under capitalism and what Marx said about the dynamics of capitalism are as true under new, you know, with all the new technology as it was when the industrial, the first industrial revolution was happening. Well, just to, because I'd really uh, like to hear uh, what you think is relevant from Marx um, and what that can tell us about automation. I'd just like to pair it back a bit back slightly and ask, there's a lot of talk about deep learning, artificial intelligence, about 3D printing houses, but actually how are workers experiencing automation in the economy now? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll be a little bit abstract, um, I suppose, and, and give you a couple of quotes. One's from Marx um, and the other one's from a, a guy called Michael Roberts, who's a Marxist economist and whom I really recommend that people read. He's, he writes under a blog called The Next Recession and he's got some, ama- you know, re- he also looks at Marx and, and 
pulls together a lot of the issues. He also gave a talk at the Marxism conference in London, which you can find um, online. And, you know, again, he talks about, about these issues. But Marx starts off by saying that, you know, one of the things about capitalism is that it is a, a system of constant innovation and constant change. And so that's both its strength and its destruction. Um, so what what he what Marx says is that more than in any other system under capitalism, new technologies both made life easier and opened up, you know, unparalleled productive forces. And so, but Marx says at the same time, it's also used partly to throw workers onto the streets, partly to break down their special skills, and partly to subject the worker to the thoroughly organised despotism of the factory system and the military discipline of capitalism. And so, you know, capitalism converts the developments of, of the conditions of labour, what should be a process that adds richness and freedom to the producers into an alien circumstance to the workers. So, you know, makes makes them sort of turned off from, from work. It's something that they're not really um, getting what they what they should out of it. And, and Michael Roberts, in criticising Paul Mason's idea of a post-capitalist world, says that... Um, you know, so an economy increasingly dominated by what they what's commonly known as the Internet of Things, and robots under capitalism will mean more intense crises, greater inequality rather than superabundance and prosperity. And what I did in my talk was sort of look at some of those, look at those issues and how it does affect workers. And what what there's undoubtedly been the case is that uh, it. You know, workers have have not benefited in the in the way that we really could out of the out of the system. There've been massive transformations in the way that the system works, and so while you know hundreds of thousands are thrown out of work, there are also new jobs created, uh, which sort of push the the system forward. So it's it's um, it's not unalloyed misery. On the other hand, it's not. You know, a fabulous improvement either. So that that's the dynamic so, that so we have Liz, to look at. So, Liz, workers. what you're are yeah. you saying that uh, basically what you've got is uh, certain practicalities, uh, economic as well as uh, uh, real world practicalities in relation to the onward. Uh, approach of capitalist economy, but in actual fact, that's tied also to an ideology that refuses to share, refuses to allow the workers to partake in any positivity? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Um, one of the, what's interesting about the development of this particular technology, the computerised technology, uh, is that one of the original founders of, uh, of compute, you know, inventors of computers, a chap called Charles Babbage, what what he did he he didn't just invent you know uh, sort of the the counting forerunners machine. of the yeah the forerunners of the because this is quite a while ago this is eighteen hundreds yeah that's right yes yeah but what he did as well was that that was all surrounded by his analysis of the work process and how that could be that could be developed in the interest of the employers and not in the interest of the workers. So his work was, in a sense, it, it sort of 
um, was part of that whole Taylorist um, project, which which meant that you divide the work up into tiny little bits, and then you apportion workers to tiny little bits of a, a thing. You know, you form the production line, that that sort of thing. Now that makes capitalism more efficient, more profitable, uh, more productive, but at the at the cost to workers of a you know of a decent sort of work you know, workplace, um, and also, of course, takes the whole point of it was to take control of the production line from from the workers because when initially the Industrial Revolution happened and people people were, you know, quite skilled and doing, doing sort of pr- producing things in small workplaces with, you know, people doing all sorts of work, what they, what they realised is that if you simplify the process um, you can make the whole thing a lot bigger but you can also take away control of the process from the workers because they were the ones who were skilled they were the ones who knew how things happened the, the, um, this this monolithic change I mean I've just been reading a book about metho what what do you call it what do you call it neolithic and mesolithic societies oh, yes, in yes. in England and it yes. was based around the concept of home and uh, the change going from Mesolithic to Neolithic which is about farming and this person was discussing the notion that all this change into to the farm uh, technology happened in 200 years not in the 2000 years that they first proposed and this is be- and this was not from top down but actually the people taking on the technology. And part of this change that's important, this is the reason why I'm bringing it up, is because this concept of time. In that earlier mm. period, everything was uh, cylindrical, uh, cyclic, right, if I've said that correctly. Like the seasons. The seasons, because that's part of their economy and it was also part of their connection to the world. Mm. Now, what we're being... Uh, uh, slowly but surely, from the 1850s or a bit earlier, uh, everything has become science-based. It's the new religion. So basically the balance between people having a livable life versus the value of money to a one, 0.01% of the population is becoming very tricky, isn't it? Things are measured in... Um, nanoseconds rather than seconds, which can also be problematic for them. Yes. Well, look. I, yeah, I think I don't think it's it's necessarily a science. Well, sort of I mean, it's not, I don't want to be anti-science. I don't think that that <laughs> I don't think that that's yes. what I'm really saying. What I'm saying is that it's become an either or. You know, you can either have a good life or you have to be a wage slave. Um, well, yes, yes, you're getting uh, one, that's one thing that capitalism does is that, that it it divides people up in in way in that sort of way, and we're seeing the fruits of it now, as you say, with the point not one percent, you know, or eight people who who own as much as the top the bottom fifty percent of the world's population. That that's the di- that is a dynamic within capitalism, um, but I think. Oh, and I suppose uh, what I'm also saying is that since that changeover, everything's become linear instead of cyclic, and uh, it means that we're always working towards progress, uh, in inverted commas, equaling automation. You know, that automation becomes a natural fact because it's a, we're all, the public that are involved in this process are actually putting the knife to their own throat. 
Well, I don't think I don't see. I don't think it's people who are putting the knife to their own throat. I think one of the, as I said before, one of the really fantastic things about capitalism is that it has made it possible. We have now got enough wealth from the productive forces that have come up under capitalism. We have got enough wealth for most people to not do very much work at all. And one of the things about automation, one of the things about all the new technology, is that it is, will be possible that people do not have to do dangerous work anymore. Uh, so, you know, going down into mines and, and dealing with sort of all kinds of things, automation could deal with that. Automation could mean that we work a couple of hours a day or that we or that we can actually do things that we really enjoy rather than do all the the sort of work that's necessary to maintain the system you know like the garbage like you know all of that kind of stuff we could we could do that sort of thing through automation and free us up for a much better life now that's not the goal of our of the ruling class that might be the goal of the working class but it's not the goal of the ruling class and that's where really the question of new technology is about class it's not about it's a, it's about capitalism it's not really about uh, the technology itself. We, we, can, we can do so much more with what we've got already. We could, you know, already we could, we could live a, be, a much better life. And so that, I think, um, brought me, looking at the world like that also brought me to, to think about um, where, the, where the challenge to, to all of this happens. And what, what we have seen in the history of technology, right from the, the Luddites right through to today, uh, the working class organising and fighting back against the, what the capitalist class is trying to do with the introduction of new technology. Well, you're on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR with Annie and Kim. I wanted to ask you, Liz, could you describe what you think some of the crises that technology or the replacement of human beings with automated systems, what sort of crises do you think this could cause for capitalism? Well, the, the, real, the underlying problem of new technology is that it increases what Marx calls the, the constant capital. Um, and so that means what you invest in technology rather than human beings. And so the more that you have invested in machinery, the less workers you have. And therefore, the way that Marx argues it is that you have a lower rate of profit. And that's certainly been the case since the development of capitalism is that the rate of profit has declined. If the rate of profit declines, what we see are the the crises uh, of capitalism that we have seen, you know, the depression, the recent sort of 2007, 2008 collapse. And so what what new technology or what further investment in automation will do is increase the likelihood of those economic crises. Um, and I think... You know that that's that's the fundamental crisis, and of course everything else flows from that. So, do you uh, think an example would be? Sorry, this is an anecdotal example, uh-huh. but the way that computers and electronics, when more and more capitalists invested in it, became cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, it because it takes less labour to actually produce them. Do you think that's an example? Well. It's, but that's not necessarily a crisis because mm. what if you lower the prices, it means more and more people can actually use the computers, uh, which, you know, as, as 
most most certainly most activists know um, is a good thing because you've got access to to things in a way that you never had before and it does make the job of doing things like leaflets or you know producing papers or whatever well, to jump in here Liz uh, actually having seen the introduction of uh, computers into say desktop publishing and all the rest of it so I've seen mm. this as an industry from an industry point of view uh, from the very beginning, I mean, it's quite fascinating to see how uh, something as valuable as this uh, electronic technology has been corralled into the forces of capitalism because there oh, yes. was a period of time when I was waiting for to work out how the capitalists were going to make their money out of it because it's mm. like... Uh, it's like water into your hands, actually. It doesn't have to have been crea- uh, gone into the way it, it, it's gone. It's just that it's taken them a long time to work out how they're going to make money out of it. And the other point about it is that an invention like this does, it ca- can only get legs if there's three elements, ca- uh, the invention, the capital and the government support. It's the only way because in the past there's been inventions that were before their time and yes. and had to be reinvented before right. they actually got legs. Yes, that's right. And yes, there comes a time within the capitalist productive system where a particular invention fits right in and take and you know and takes them multiple steps forward. But I think I think what this highlights really um is the is the 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 two-sided aspects of new technology and the two-sided aspects of any development within capitalism if the if the ruling class is in the ascendant then the new technology will be used against workers if the if the working class is starting to rise up um, and organizing then the new technology can be bent into the into the interests of the working class fundamentally though we're not going to we're not going to win that battle until we change the system altogether. And I think one of the one of the um, really interesting things about the introduction of new technology um, and the you know where we are now is that we really you know over and over and over again we've seen working class organising to fight back, to take back some of the control, to take back, um, to, you know, fight for, for their own rights under the under the system. And in many cases they've won, in many cases, you know, in a number of other cases like Silicon Valley, uh, the un- that has remained virtually de-unionised. Compared to that, you see all the places like Amazon and all the new logistics side of the business uh, becoming... While it's becoming more computerised, it's also becoming more unionised. It's an interesting example because I think Amazon is a, also a really good example of how automation is linked to Taylorism. Yes. Oh, yes, it is. That's that's the fundamental underlying thing about automation is that it may it it makes what Taylor and Babbage were talking about back in the eighteen hundreds. It makes it even more possible to control every last aspect of of a job. Uh, and Fundamentally end, unfair too. Yes, yes, and you end up, in fact, with computers or with robots, um, artificial intelligence, which means that um, there are, you know, there is effectively no no workers there. Um, there aren't unions. Um, on the other hand, what it does is that the, the people who maintain the computers, the people who are at the control centres of those of those 
premises actually have a far far greater control over over what's going on. I think the Latrobe so, Valley. So they're, they're the new fitters and turners of the yes. technocratic society. Yes. Yes, I mean, Latrobe Valley is a good example of that with the power stations. Uh, the workforce has, has dwindled considerably, but th- those workers actually have a whole lot more power um, in the where they are. They can effectively turn the thing on and off. It's interesting, uh, just a point, that Amazon, the company, is listed as one of the companies that supported Trump on his, and people are... Uh, uh, calling for people to consider not using Amazon because of their political affiliation. It's also quite worrying because Amazon seems to be becoming the next Google. It's buying everything. It's owning everything. So it's actually quite, it'd be quite difficult to boycott Amazon. It's not just the book depository that mm. you think it is now. It's much, much larger than that. Yeah, that's business. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, the the fact is that if we did develop some some sort of boycott campaign, that would be incredibly powerful because it would basically mean that the biggest company, um, no matter who they took over, no matter what they did, if you had that sort of campaign, that that could effect, effectively cripple them. You would need, though, and I, I come. I mean, although I know some boycott campaigns have been very effective, the real point it would be to organise the workers within the within the Amazon chain, so that they're they're the one, they're the ones who actually um, are making a real difference. And we we know that the ruling class supports Trump in a whole lot of ways. They they support um, you know Malcolm Turnbull here. Uh, the, that the ruling class will support the people that they think are working in their interests. Well, of course. Yes, yes. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We're talking to Liz Ross. And before we go, Liz, has it registered on your radar that uh, there's talk of the federal government here instituting a robot instead of uh, giving out information on Centrelink? Not that people who are on Social Security would think that that was a change. Well, no, to defend the workers in Centrelink, um, I, don't, I don't think the workers in Centrelink are, are robots. And in fact, they're helping to, to build against what the government is doing. I think this is a nightmare to put a robot mm-hmm. in, the, in Centrelink. I think that's, that's exactly the sort of thing that the ruling class wants to do. And I think that if the, the workers in, in Centrelink um, organised to stop it, I don't think it will, will happen. And as they, you know, as they are actually trying to subvert um, and disrupt the, what the government is trying to do in the, uh, you know, in the... Um, yeah, the leaks have been uh, yeah. quite... Yes. Incredible. Well, yes. they deserve it. Yes. They deserve yeah, it. Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. Before I go, though, one one thing: if if people are interested in actually hearing my talk, we should have it up on our Marxism Conference website by the end of February, um, and there'll be another a number of other talks. But also, Marxism Conference for this year, we're going to have some talks about IT workers themselves and how they've organised and you know in the IT industry. We're going to be talking about one of the spin-offs of of uh, the the new technology, which is the Uber and things like yeah, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right, and, and, and like that. Yeah. And also the um, the universal basic income. Oh, I was just going to say, I was going to introduce that too. Yeah. Right. So, so yes, we've got we've got some fabulous sessions coming up um, in Marxism as well. But I think the fundamental question to take out of out of the whole new technology issue, automation, artificial intelligence, is about the balance of class forces. If we if the working class 
fights back, then we can get more control over the over what's going on and also build the basis for a fundamental change in the system. That's 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 what we've got to work for and not and not just just sort of let the bosses get away with their neoliberal projects and and the automation that is really basically destructive of of human life. Thanks, Liz. And hopefully we'll see you at the Women's March at 1 at the uh, State Library Yes, steps. well, it's, it's more than just a Women's March. Um, I mean, although women are 50% of the population, I think it, it also is everybody. We want everybody along because it's in everybody's interest to fight back against the kind of politics that Trump represents, both in America and here. And we're in solidarity with all of the marches in America as well. Good o Yeah. See you all there. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we've got uh, Roger Wilson on the phone. He's from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners. G'day, Roger. How are you? Oh, good morning. I'm uh, still waking up every morning, so I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> we might actually ask you to go off hands-free because it's not as loud as I thought it was. Okay. Just uh, hang on a minute. Okay. No worries. Is that better? Yeah, much better. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I'm holding the phone. Yeah, it's all right. Thanks, mate. Um, Roger, uh, we're very keen to find out what uh, the Fair Go for Pensioners' reaction is to the attacks on uh, pensions over the last few weeks. Okay, well, perhaps I should briefly... Uh, are we on air? We yeah. certainly are. Okay, perhaps I should tell your listeners, given that this is going to be a year-long program, uh, participating in your solidarity program, some brief background to fair go for pensioners. Early in 2007, a meeting was initiated by the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria. Listeners will recall that it was 2007, it was an election year, the Howard government was defeated and uh, it was replaced by the Rudd Labor government. Fair go for pensioners, a 
emerge from that meeting initiated by the Ethnic Communities Council. Initially, the alliance consisted of ethnic community organisations, a number of trade union retiree groups and others concerned about pensioners uh, and retiree issues. I should also add that we made a very strong link right from the start with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Victorian Trades Hall Council is now a member of Fair Go for Pensioners in its own right. So does that mean that, Roger, that you, uh, your organisation has actually got a uh, platform of... Uh... Demands? Yeah. Yes, we do. We, we have demands on the federal government... Uh, the main demand is to increase the pension from what it was when that go- when the Rudd government was elected, 25% of average male full-time earnings to 35% as a more reasonable uh, payment for pensioners, people who all of their working life have paid taxes, contributed to the development of this country and uh, you know the pension as it currently exists is uh, quite insufficient and there's been lots of publicity uh, about think tanks and others looking into this question so that's our main demand we had demands we have demands concerning the health system by way of example we think that it would be a good thing if dentistry were moved into Medicare and just be part of Medicare. And uh, we had a number of... Uh, we also have demands on the state government. The main demands on state government concern such things as constantly increasing rates for those who are fortunate enough to own their own home, uh, Water well, rate, uh, ro- water Roger, Roger you've, hit, Roger, you've hit on to something there because the changes to the pension that have just recently come out, as far as I can make out, seem to be targeting people who have their own home. Well, it does, and of course listeners will be aware that uh, a number of times since... Uh, Abbott was for, Abbott defeated the uh, Gillard government, and then now we have uh, Turnbull who got rid of uh, Abbott. But since uh, since the National Liberal Coalition government has been in office these last several years, on a number of occasions. The idea has been raised that the assets test should include the family home. Or in other words, either sell your home if you haven't got enough money to live on or take out, uh, uh, what are they called? Reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgage or something of that nature. It's really, it's uh, the current attack on social security... uh, I think it's probably in a broad historical socio-economic sense 
probably even more savage than during the so-called Great Depression of the 9th and 1930s. Well, that's, yeah, it's quite where, horrific. Where, where I think social security was at a very low level. Yeah, I think as well, uh, definitely the stuff with the house is quite ridiculous because whether your house is valued at some ridiculous price doesn't mean, well, you're, you need to live under a roof. So if you sell it and buy another one, it's going to be expensive. I wanted to ask you, how do these changes to pensions and these cuts, how do they affect uh, pensioners that you know? I think I remember my grandma talking about how she knew a lot of pensioners who were literally living on bread and jam. Well, uh, fair go for pensioners has, uh, and we've done a number of case studies, and we've found those that are in the, that fortunate position of owning their own home. Uh, we've uh, we've got uh, case studies of people paying. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I should uh, talk about people renting. Uh, renting paying. 75% of their pension for rent and the rest is supposed to cover all of their own uh, immediate needs, never mind any small luxuries like going to the theatre or something of that nature. Seeing your children? Uh, and and bring in, uh, bringing up children or looking after uh, older parents who, uh, uh, you know, acting as carers and... Uh, it's really uh, extraordinarily difficult, and if the system of home ownership uh, is undermined in the way that uh, the government is uh, signalling that uh, the road that it wants to go down, uh, there's no doubt this is going to cause much more disaster for pensioners, including those who own their own home, and I think we're seeing an expression of that disaster beginning to unfold in that so many people are now forced to sleep on the street simply because they can't uh, afford the necessary goods and services that one needs to merely exist. Can you tell me your reaction or your members' reaction to some of the Liberal National Party federal ministers uh, and uh, members saying that people who are on the pension are poor and they should just shut up? Well, I, well, I have to say that as far as fair go for pensioners are concerned, we absolutely reject this notion and... I think what's actually emerging, and uh, I've had a long experience in the union and the socio-political movements, I'm 87 come April, and uh, I started my uh, working-class education at age 16 when I went away to sea just after the Second World War, and... As far as these people are concerned, I actually think that their idea is that all of the gains that the working class and community social movements were able to achieve between, say, the latter part of the 19th century and during most of the 20th century up until about the 80s when most of the working conditions and people's rights have begun to 
to be more vigorously attacked. I think their idea is that somehow or other those improvements to life for the broader community somehow or other it's an aberration of capitalism. It's not working like capitalism should where you have a mass army of unemployed, you can force wages down, you can take away people's rights and that's what we're beginning to witness uh, and personally I think in my experience I think we're going through one of the worst periods uh, in of the last hundred years. So Roger, if a person wanted to get their voice heard and become part of Fair Go for Pensioners, yes. how would they do that? Well, they could do that either by contacting myself, uh, my, I'll give you my phone number. Is it okay to give the phone number or email address? Yeah, if you want. It's up like to you. That? It's up what, to you, what, Roger. What do you think is the best, email or... Email's probably best. Okay, well, my email address, all lowercase, Roger Wilson, 1812, the 1812 are numbers, not, uh, not letters, uh, at hotmail.com and or they can contact Lou Wheeler at Rainew R-A-I-N-E-W 33 at gmail.com we're always uh, Fairgo for Pensioners incidentally has a group which is called or termed the individual group and that actually is to cater for people ring up, they say, I want to help, but I'm not representing an organisation. We have an organisational structure of a steering committee, and each organisation, when they join Fair Go for Pensioners, has two representatives, so it's... uh, And the democratic uh, model is one of consensus. We try to talk through problems... Because we have a very wide range of organisations as members. For those individuals who don't represent an organisation but wish to help, if they contact either myself or Lou Wheeler, we'll tell them uh, how to go about it. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Roger. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, and we'll I hear hope from... to talk with you again sometime and... Uh, We've got you've got our roster, and uh, hopefully uh, the program will go successfully for the next twelve months. And if you're still in the saddle, we might, in solidarity with you, uh, participate uh, in the following year. Brilliant! Thanks, mate. Come to the rally against the Centrelink debt recovery scheme at twelve thirty on the thirty-first of January at the State Library in Melbourne. The government has unleashed a flawed debt recovery scheme. Thousands of past and present Centrelink clients have been told to pay debts they don't owe. This has been a highly distressing experience for the people affected. We all need to stand up to this attack and demand the scheme be scrapped. Come and join the rally at 12.30 on the 31st of January at the State Library, corner of Swanson and Latrobe Streets, Melbourne. Visit the Facebook page, Dignity Not Debt, End a Centrelink Debt Debacle. Spread the word and we'll see you there. Organised by the Australian Unemployment Workers' Union.
And we were, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we were just talking to Roger Wilson, who's part of uh, Fair Go for Pensioners. Every uh, every few weeks, we'll have a word from Fair Go from, for Pensioners, uh, different members, as he said, there's a roster, and they're going to uh, drop in and have a chat with us about what's on their, their horizon so that we don't forget. How is it possible to forget, Kim? I know, and it looks like the next thing that, is going to happen to them is that robot Centrelink <laughs> automated imagine? messages. I'm not looking forward there to There was it. a fantastic thing on Facebook of people who uh, – um, it's a it's a funny little cartoon type thing where these two men get or it's a, they get into the elevator and it's a, a voice recognition in a Scottish elevator. And so each time the person tells the, uh, the people in the elevator ask for the, the floor – the automated voice can't recognise their accent. It's actually quite hysterical. <laughs> so I'm imagining, you know, people who have different ages and uh, the way they talk and think, uh, if the computer, the robot, will actually be able to respond. And then, of course, then you go to the catch-22 situation is that uh, it's your fault. The customer is always wrong. Of course. <laughs> We're going to move on now. We're going to talk about uh, the Trump inauguration, which happened at about our, our time. They're about 10 hours behind us. Isn't that right? About four in the morning. Yeah, four in the morning. Yeah. And uh, later on, we're going to have a, a yarn with Katie Robinson, who was actually there during their lead up to that election, as, as well as uh, talking about the uh, gathering that's going to happen outside the library today, the State Library in Melbourne, that is. And I'm sure there are others in Australia going on at the same time. There's, I know there's one in Sydney. But anyway, it's all about uh, various things that uh, the politic of Trump. Uh, but before we do, we actually gathered up some information about uh, reactions as well as the actual speech that yes, he made. that he made this morning. There have been protests. It's it sounds like there's been a lot in the US and they're really aimed at disrupting the inauguration, which is a fantastic thing, and they're only just starting to kick off and I think they're going to culminate in the Women's March mm -hmm. from what I've read. But there's also been protests around the world, not all of them left-wing, but quite a lot of them. But some have been in support. Some have been in support. Some have been... Right-wing forces, like I think one of the most curious ones, it was not really that curious, is in Manila. It seems to be more a kind of nationalist right-wing protest, oh. but against Trump, but more against... You can't tell us what to do. Exactly. The, you don't know me. The control of foreign policy by the US. I think that's sort of the idea, which is interesting given the kind of fascist politics that seem to be creeping into the Philippines. There was also protests in Sri Lanka that seemed to be more left-wing in Japan, in Hungary, there seem to be a bunch of those. You realise, of course, there's uh, they've uh, US troops. About three thousand US troops have landed in Poland Ooh. over the last few uh, last week. Terrifying. Yeah. Well, anyway. By the well, way. They, these weren't the kind of right wing figures that were speaking at this. One guy did mention something positive about the new world order, which kind of terrified me. There's these kind of fascist. Well, what would be considered sort of fascist language that it seems to be creeping in? You'll hear a bit of it in Trump's speech. 
Yeah, uh, glorious but, destiny. I think is one thing that he. But also, mentions. one of the horrifying things about his speech is the way he has, and his speechwriters, because I'm not entirely sure he's actually able to write a speech, but whatever, they usually have speechwriters, is that uh, he has been taking the concepts and language of the left uh, and uh, melding it within his own. Yes, he keeps talking about the people and he keeps talking about the establishment and he's not referring to himself. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And that's one of the things we'd like to talk to Katie Robinson about later on. But uh, I know despite trying to bore you to tears, but over the next few days, everybody is going to be inundated with uh, opinions about what uh, Trump Trump said. said. And this is a 16 – his speech went for about 16 minutes. If you can stand it, this is the speech. And it's not because we're endorsing the speech quite clearly. It's so that you actually have the raw data rather than uh, being led by the nose. And I'll give you Ireland's reaction after. Yes. (laughs) Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter... President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Together, we will determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. We will face challenges. We will confront hardships. But we will get the job done. Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. And we are grateful to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama for their gracious aid throughout this transition. They have been magnificent. Thank you. Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning because today, We are not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another, but we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government, while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. 
Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. That all changes starting right here and right now, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. It belongs to everyone gathered here today and everyone watching all across America. This is your day. This is your celebration. And this, the United States of America, is your country. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We are one nation, and their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams, and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home, and one glorious destiny. The oath of office I take today is an oath of allegiance to all Americans. For many decades, 
We've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own. And spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. We've made other countries rich while the wealth, strength, and confidence of our country has dissipated over the horizon. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores with not even a thought about the millions and millions of American workers that were left behind. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed all across the world. But that is the past. And now we are looking only to the future. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. There's the man. It's not the complete lot. It actually goes for 16 minutes, which is mm. uh, probably too extreme to go ahead on. Go on. You I think to say that, something? well, I wanted to talk about borders because that's one of the things that he's talking about, the integrity of borders and such. What we were discussing earlier is some interesting research that I heard that actually interviewed the wealth managers of people like Trump who actually, despite what he says, are the establishment. What I found so interesting about this research was that these wealth managers of the rich and powerful, the 1% who hide their wealth in tax havens, who travel the world as they please, who, for them, borders, laws are optional. These wealth managers, they really are quite intimate with their clients because as the uh, as they were explaining, if you are incredibly rich, you need to tell your wealth manager whether there's people in your family who you don't like, you don't want them to get money from you. If you're having an affair, then you really need to disclose that because perhaps if your partner finds out you don't want them divorcing you and taking half your wealth, so on. 
Uh, so they're actually quite intimate with their clients. A lot of the time they feel like their wealth manager, this is the rich and powerful, is the only person that they can actually trust because they're explaining how a lot of wealth managers were saying this about their clients is that they're very, very suspicious of friends and family because they think that the only thing that everyone cares about, because probably because it's the only thing that they care about is money. So the only people they trust are the people who they are paying in a kind of odd way. Uh, But one of the stories that really stuck out to me was from, and it's completely shows how hypocritical people like Trump are, was there was this young wealth manager and she was going with her boss to meet a client overseas and she forgot her passport, which is a bit of a rookie mistake and I would be very worried about this if this were, if I was going to do something with my boss. But she turned up at the airport and she was saying, I don't have my passport, we have to go back. And her boss kept saying, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And she's like, no, really? I mean, we're walking to the airport, into the airport. And she's like, just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And they got on their clients, I think it was their client's private plane. And they flew overseas. And she was absolutely shocked. I think it was a woman. She was absolutely shocked that they didn't check her passport. They didn't check anyone's passport. They got to this country. They had the meeting, got back on board. Nobody checked their passport. And... The conclusion from all this is you cannot understand what these people's lives are like because for them, taxes are optional. And one of the examples they use was Hillary Clinton, um, who, you know, is another member of the establishment, but she was attacking Trump for not paying taxes. And he was saying in the background, that makes me clever. That makes me clever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We've got uh, uh, Katie Robinson on the line. Now, Katie was actually... Uh, following the Trump com- Trump campaign, weren't you, Katie? That's right. I was in America for three weeks um, on the campaign trail, so I was actually following um, both the Clinton and the Trump campaign. And so when uh, Kim, who you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie, when Kim talks about this basically two different worlds, the world of uh, the established order plus uh, the people who are voting, uh, Trump is quite clearly is was speaking to a group of people who felt like they were being marginalised. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I saw that um, very clearly um, on the ground in terms of attending both. Uh, I went to a Mike Pence rally and a Donald Trump rally. And then I also went to a Hillary Clinton rally and a Barack Obama rally. And you could see that just so starkly on the ground. The comparison was quite amazing. Um, the Donald Trump rally was... It was more like a nationalistic kind of rally. It was um, very much about riling people up about American values. Um, it was very interesting for me to be amongst the crowd and what I really tried to do was talk to as many people as I, as I possibly could, particularly, um, obviously, as a young feminist, I was very interested to talk to women in the crowd um, and really try and drill down into what it was that they um, were interested in and what it was that appealed to them um, in terms of um, voting for Trump, um, which was a fascinating experience. Um, and then to go from that to a couple of days later um, to, to a, a Hillary Clinton rally and be amongst the crowd there, very different feel, very much more relaxed, um, a, lot of, a lot more women for a start, a lot more young people, women bringing their children along, um, and just, again, chatting to people in, in that crowd 
equally about why they were voting for Clinton, but also what their fears were with the Trump administration. In one of the pieces that you wrote up for Huffington Post, you you talk about a a chat you were having with a woman on the aeroplane, Betty, Mm -hmm. a small perky woman in her late 60s. (laughs) Um, It it struck me as being really interesting because she she, uh, was talking about how scary it would be to have Mm. Hillary Clinton uh, in power. What was her perspective, do you think? Yes, it was one of those strange um, situations and it was probably a bit of a baptism by fire on my way over to the States where you sort of on a long flight and you get chatting to the person next to you and, um, you know, I think the initial comment was, you know, geez, this, this election's feeling quite scary, isn't it? And I sort of laughed thinking, oh, gosh, we're on the same page about this. Um, and then she went on to say that, you know, she was terrified about Clinton um, becoming president, um, which really took me aback. Um, and so I think actually sort of, from that point, I thought, hang on, this is actually a really good opportunity to have a really um, neutral and respectful conversation with someone and really try and drill into what it is that um, she's concerned about. Um, and look, I think in hindsight, and you know, perhaps writing that piece on reflection, it's all the stereotypical things that we all read about and we hear about. You know, for example, she was pro-life, she's pro-gun choice. Um, she has. Uh, she had a very um, heightened sense of fear about crime in America, despite the fact we know statistically that crime over the past decade has been drastically decreasing. Uh, and one of the main things that struck me is that, um, you know, with each fear she raised or each concern she raised, um, you know, when I sort of politely sort of responded with sort of a factual response such as, you know, gun crime in America... Um, you know, it, it didn't matter to her. It was about feelings, not about facts. And I think that that really was quite symbolic of how many people in America, and I'd equally argue in Australia with the election last year and the rise of One Nation once again and with Brexit in the UK, I think it, we're looking at this new wave of politics that's been talked about quite a bit in relation to Trump, where people, um, people aren't really interested in facts or truth. I'm interested. I heard today that apparently one of the slogans of the protests in the US against the inauguration is rage, rage at the dying of our rights. I thought that was quite clever. But I also was wondering, could you outline some of the rights that you think are under threat from Trump in the US at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the obvious one that we've heard a lot about is the freedom of the press. He's made, um, he has uh, been very clear that he um, wants to curtail um, the rights of the press and we saw his very aggressive attacks throughout the campaign. I'd have to say one of the things that really struck me at the rally of his I went to was, again, it was something I'd read about and we've all read about it. You know, at each rally he'd, he'd pick a moment where he'd point to the, the press corps who were in a particular area in the crowd and encourage everyone to turn around and jeer them. But actually being in the crowd and being probably a few metres from where most of the press were, um, that feeling I can't describe, it was just electric. It was like everybody turned and it felt to me that if Trump had said attack that particular cameraman, the crowd would have killed him. Like It, it was like he had the crowd on a leash. Um, so I think freedom of press is an obvious problem. I mean, the obvious other problem I think that we're all quite concerned about is a woman's right to choose. Um, he's made it very clear that he intends to stack the Supreme Court 
um, with a very conservative um, with very conservative judges um, who will look at Roe versus Wade again, which I think, um, particularly on the ground in America, and I, I travelled around, but particularly in the more progressive parts of America, um, there's mm-hmm. a palpable fear and, and a palpable rage from women that I also share. You think, for goodness sakes, are we dealing with this again? Like. You know, my mother marched for this. My grandmother marched for this. I, I will march for this again. And, of course, I will march for this again. But there's so much more work we need to do in the feminist space. And we're having to go back and, and look at this again. I mean, for goodness sakes. So I think there's numerous rights. There's also, I think, a, a great deal of fear um, uh, from uh, the African-American community, from the Latino community, and also a particular sort of following or, or interest and concern of mine from the immigrant community. So to be honest, I think if next year a sort of middle to upper um, wealthy white male, I'd be very concerned at the moment. Well, it was quite interesting in some of those articles that you wrote, you, know, you were talking to people who were like, oh no, this is all straw polls, but of course this is part of how stories are told and gossip is related effect, effectively and how individual stories become fact. But when you went to some of those uh, tr- that Trump event, you talked to African-American women who were selling or whatever they did, selling, I presume, because, of course, the almighty dollar in every event and every <laughs> spectacle is all about money but and it would seem normal. But uh, she was selling Trump regalia and uh, you seem to. She was seemed to say that uh, oh, all well, that uh, locker room, what they in inverted commas locker room, but I would call basically misogynist crap, mm. was oh boys will be boys. Yeah, I mean absolutely. I think just on your first point, um, through a polls, I think look, given given what the official polls were saying <laughs> right way through until election day, I think. Um, you know, generally, we all need to reconsider how we're actually taking the temperature of an election and um, and polling. Um, but as I said, yeah, one of the I'll have to say before was... Katie, before you go ahead, our program was right. We oh, we dear. spoke to someone in America <laughs> on the way through, and he said this is what would happen. Wow, I mean, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll come back to your question, but it's very interesting for me. Um, coming back to Australia, I was obviously away for that month before the election, but quite a few people have said to me. Yes, the feeling here was very much that, um, you know, it was looking likely for Trump, whereas the feeling on the ground where I was, I was in two um, swing states. I was in Florida and North Carolina um, initially and then in New York. But even on the ground, even going to talk to um, Republicans and going to Republican campaign offices to take their temperature, um, people were not confident at all of, of a of a Trump victory, and in fact, um, a number of um, Republican volunteers I spoke to and even some more senior people I spoke to on the campaign trail were um, not wanting a Trump victory, which was also very interesting. But I think coming back to your earlier question, um, uh, a couple of conversations with women I had, um, and the woman you're referring to, um, it was an opportunity just for me to sort of try and probe a bit deeper and say, well, okay, fair enough, you might be voting for Trump because you're sick of the establishment or you want something different. Um, but, but, you know, how, do you, how did you feel when he made those comments? And as you sort of outlined, it was very much this kind of, um, oh, you know, you know, Trump just speaks exactly like my brothers do, you know. Um, it's no big deal. It's locker room banter. And I suppose my takeaway feeling from those conversations was, if anything, those comments by Trump had actually endeared him to these women because in their reality... 
um, sadly for me, I felt sexism is so ingrained in their reality, in their relationships with their partners, their brothers, their workmates. That was normal for them, and that made Trump normal, and it made him one of them. And I think um, they they almost really appreciated those comments, um, which made me feel quite depressed. <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying, actually. Absolutely well, horrifying. Well, I think you just also think, how do you... Um, there's such a bigger issue there with unpacking um, unpacking that logic. You, you know, you don't even have a starting base point that you or I might have um, where you can sort of say, hang on a minute, that's not appropriate that's not an appropriate way to, to speak about women because women are valued um, that you know as a starting point that's missing so if anything people are saying oh isn't he adorable oh look it's a bit cheeky but hey you know I, I joke with my brothers all the time about that sort of stuff oh it's so awful <laughs> now um, uh, some people have said you know why why would we bother in Australia spending a lot of time talking about Trump uh, we can't vote for him uh, we can all just go clack, 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 go, oh, isn't that awful? Uh, but, and there's going to be a march today in Melbourne and there'll be marches in other places. Why is it important to, for uh, it to, why is it important that Australians sit up and take uh, heed of what's going on? I think it's never been more important. And I think um, in the dark, horrible hours in New York after the um, election, I spent um, election night at the Clinton event and, walking home through New York and trying to, in the next few days, trying to reconcile the result. I think um, I think there are very few positives to come out of this, but I think the only positive I can foresee um, is that this is an opportunity to wake up and the left really need to use this opportunity to organise. I think, um, particularly for Australians, we need to take this very seriously because Firstly, obviously, um, Trump has incredible power globally and incredible power, um, uh, in, you know, in the relationship with Australia. But if you want to bring it down to, to a more national, more domestic level, it's very serious because we have Trump elements in Australian politics and Australian society at the moment, and they are on the rise. We have that. We see that with the rise of One Nation at the last election. And importantly, I would argue more dangerously at the moment, we see that within the right of the government at the moment, within the right of the Liberal Party. We see that with Cory Bernardi. We see that with George Christensen. And we see that with um, even to, I would say, to um, a slightly lesser extent with um, uh, people like um, Dutton. So I think at the moment it's incredibly important that we rise up and we say this is not acceptable. We will not tolerate this bigotry, this racism and above all else, this sexism in politics and um, in global relations Um, because as we speak, the right in Australia um, and the more Donald Trump-esque right in Australia is continuing to gain ground. And I see that Pauline Hanson was quite chuffed to have a member of her party invited to the inaugural, well, invited to the inauguration, I believe. Mm, so right. I think they're making clear connections and we need to as well, which I think is why this rally is so fantastic. We have women, but everyone united to see a common enemy. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. We can't afford to be complacent at the moment. And I think, um, you know, there's, it's very easy to sit at home or to talk to your friends and to feel really depressed and overwhelmed by what's going on. Um, but I think we have to really use this opportunity to mobilise. And, and I'd agree with what you say as well. We've seen very clear indications from Trump. I think in the immediate aftermath of his election, there was some hope um, amongst um, 
smaller liberals and progressives that, look, maybe it wouldn't be that bad and he was playing the crowd um, during the election. Um, but we've seen that very clearly in terms of the appointments in his cabinet he's made. It, it's actually the most um, white male-dominated um, and least diverse cabinet of any um, inauguration or any government since 1981 in Reagan. Um, there's not a single Latino member. Um, there are two women. Um, and so, and then I think we're all aware of some of the very questionable appointments um, and their histories, particularly on issues such as civil rights. So I think we've seen very clearly and very strongly and equally um, in terms of who he's chosen to invite from Australia, um, the exact sort of administration he intends um, to oversee and preside over. And that's why we really have to take a stand. I just love the fact that the... Uh Secretary of State is what used to be the CEO of ExxonMobil. I just just find that incredible. Oh, where do you start though? Really, where do you start? <laughs> Nine of the appointments to environmentally inclined areas are climate change deniers. Yes, it's extremely worrying. I yeah. think one thing that we can look to for hope, though, is that. It is unprecedented the amount of resistance to a president even before they have taken office. So I think we have to start relying on our side instead of, well, obviously we have to study their side as well, but rely on our own uh, resistance. I think that's right. And I think we've seen that. I have a friend actually who's in um, DC this weekend, the protests, and um, we've seen that in New York um, for the couple of days after the election when I was there. I was um, down and observing and part of some of the massive rallies that took place in the streets there, which were incredibly inspiring and give us real hope. Um, And also, again, just observing the crowd of people participating in those rallies was extremely diverse and very heartening for me, a huge amount of young women as well getting out there and protesting. Um, You know, I think... um, for my generation, um, you know, I'm consistently quite frustrated and disappointed by the level of apathy I see around feminist issues, um, but also politics more generally. So that was very heartening for me. And I, I think, as I said, coming back to it, um, if there's one positive and there's only one, I think that this is an opportunity for people to wake up and realise that this is very dangerous and our rights are on the line. Before before you go, uh, some people would say, because they're in... Uh they're so into uh, the balance, uh, contrived balance that's created by sporting events that you've got an umpire, they've done the election, two sides, two teams, one team's won, why don't you just get over it? I think, um, oh, well, I think that's interesting, isn't it, given how much Trump talked about the election being rigged um, throughout the campaign and then suddenly it's all, all fair and above board. Um, I do think that's a valid point, actually. I do think... Um, Look, there are a huge amount of problems with the electoral system in America and that's probably um, something for another conversation or another entire show um, in terms of an extremely disappointing um, once you actually, once you crunched the numbers and looked at who was voting um, and the extremely poor voter turnout um, in America. But I think you're right. I think 
Trump won the American election. Um, that said, we do not have to accept um, his administration and his choices. And, and America proclaims, proclaims itself to be a democracy um, and proclaims itself to operate on the will of the people. Um, so we need to use this opportunity, um, and Americans in particular, but equally in Australia, we need to use this opportunity to be very vocal about um, the choices Trump makes because... You know, he may be elected president, but that doesn't mean we accept him as a dictator um, for the next um, administration either. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. And hopefully you will see a lot of us uh, down at the rally today, one o'clock at the State Library. That's right. It'd be great to see you all there. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Katie. Yep, that was Katie Robinson, and she gave us some information about what it was like to be following that campaign. Very interesting stuff. There's some other things before, I mean, don't forget, put it in your calendar, go down at one one o'clock at the uh, uh, library steps, State Library steps, if you're in Melbourne. Oh, yeah, but we've got a fantastic piece about uh, who's going to be performing at the inauguration. Yes, well, I did kind of allude to this earlier. People may have heard of Michael Flatley from Lord of the Dance kind of fame. That was kind of a cultural phenomenon a little while ago. It's pretty hideous, I have to say, in general. Um, But he is apparently agreed to perform at the inauguration. Because uh, um, Trump was having a great... Difficulty. A lot of difficulty getting people to agree to. And I just love this reaction from... Ireland. Um, We've got the headline, Michael Flatley, dead to us now, says Ireland. (laughs) And I just love the language that they're using. Um, He has, um, or there's quotes uh, from, I think this is part of the Michael Flatley fan club in Ireland, saying that he can forget about coming back here, the sweaty bollocks, and he's now... (laughs) Dead to us, um, and the I think it was actually the president of uh, the Lord of, of the Irish Flatley fan club who was seen ripping down posters of the Riverdance pioneer off the wall, and he said that if he wants to give a private dance to Donald Trump, that's his business, but he needn't think we'll be showing up for the Lord of the Dance 20th reunion tour or whatever. He's tapped his last on Irish soil, so good on them. You can come with your flag. We're calling all sovereign peoples and supporters to gather in Melbourne on Invasion Day. Join us on the steps of Parliament House, 11am, Thursday the 26th of January. We'll lay flowers in memory of our ancestors, hear speeches and march through the CBD. Call that Australia Day. I said, how about my... 2016 showed us anything. It's that the fight for Aboriginal rights is far from over. From the disgraceful human rights abuses in Dondale to the continuing exploitation of Indigenous labour to the ongoing fights amongst mining operations and nuclear dumps on Aboriginal land. 2016 will stand as one of the most regressive years in the country's history. Join the call for a treaty now. 11am, Invasion Day, 26th of January. Steps of Parliament. We'll see you there. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land and Aboriginal law. You can come and waste your flag. It don't mean a thing to me. No, it just don't mean You can uh, show your solidarity to for uh, concerns regarding uh, mining on Aboriginal land. Uh, Call of the Kimberley, a fundraiser to fight fracking in 
the Kimberleys. Kutcher Edwards is going to be performing Sunday, January the 22nd. That's tomorrow, 4pm to 8.30pm at the Wilderness Society Campaign Centre, which is 355 King Street, West Melbourne, opposite Flagstaff Gardens. It's a paid event because they're obviously fundraising. It costs 30 bucks, 30 bucks tickets available at Eventbrite. That's Call of the Kimberley. If you're interested as well, we have a reenactment happening. Ron Quantock, uh, Quantock as Daniel Mannix. So I just think that's fantastic. Yes, I think it is. People may remember Bishop Mannix from history, from a time when the Catholics were quite radical. On the 28th of January 1917, for he publicly criticised World War I as a trade war. And it was a historic speech. Not just speech. a trade war, a sordid trade war. A sordid war. trade war, sorry. He's a much better orator than me. So please come to that reenactment. It'll be happening Saturday, the 28th of January, 2017, from 2pm to 3.30 at St Ambrose Hall, which is where the original speech was made, which is 3 Dawson Street, Brunswick, and it's a free event. Fantastic stuff. Bit of um, real politic fights. And, of course, don't forget the Dignity Not Debt in Centrelink Debt Debacle, which is Tuesday the 31st of January, 12.30pm, State Library Steps. It's been called by the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. And uh, obviously that's all terribly important stuff. What did we have on the show today? Well, we started off talking about issues of automation with Liz Ross this morning. And then we talked about fair go for pensioners. That's right. And then we moved on to the diabolical Trump Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and we're going to go out with some interesting, uh, a bit of music. I, I've decided that uh, we're going to play something, ah, because it's Invasion Day coming up, 26th, Ugh. we're going to play Australia, uh, put together by the Burundian drummers, A New Perspective.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.